Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And, um, well, a lot has changed since we last talked. Uh, when we recorded the last episode of season two, it was 2020 still. Um, Donald Trump was still the president of the United States. The U.S. Capitol had not been stormed yet. Uh, and we had never had a president impeached more than once. And that has all changed in the last month. Yeah, in the last month. Um, we're going to talk about that this week with Evan Osnos, who you might know from The New Yorker or CNN or his recent biography on our new president, Joe Biden. Before we get to that, though, I've got a programming note. Uh, longtime listeners know that this podcast has gone through a lot of change. We started in 2019 as a place to listen to the live conversations taking place at events that Crosscut put on uh, across Seattle throughout the year. Then last year, when the pandemic hit and events stopped, we switched over to an in-studio interview format, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, I got to do all the interviews, and I got to talk with a lot of really smart, really interesting people, and I also got to build a home studio. <laughs> so uh, it was a great season. But since then, we've figured out how to do events again, virtually. And we're hoping that later in 2021, we'll be able to do in-person events again as well. So for this third season of Crosscut Talks, we're returning to form and again, featuring conversations from live events. So these are a little less polished, but the conversations are just as good. And this one with Evan is a perfect conversation to start with. It's part of our new monthly at-large series, which features me talking about the biggest issues with journalists from across the country who know them best. So like I said before, Evan is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he's a contributor to CNN, a fellow at the Brookings Institute, and the author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now, which you should know came out before the election. It's a really good read, and it's a really short read, which I appreciated because I am uh, really trying to chip away at the Obama book, and um, I, uh, I appreciated the break. But of course, Joe Biden is in both books, and they actually are pretty good companion pieces because uh, a lot of what is going on with Joe Biden as he starts his presidency um, is foretold in those Obama years, or at least that's what is casting the shadow, right, as he forms his administration. So in his book, Evan tells us about President Biden's personal and political life in an effort to understand the man. He details the obstacles that Biden has overcome and the tragedies he's endured, which is what a lot of biographers of the president have done recently. But what I found most compelling about Evan's account is the attention that he's paid to the last decade or so of Biden's political life. In Evan's telling, we see a man in the White House, a vice president who's being forged by the forces of history, forming a kind of theory of the presidency 
and being prepared for a role that it appeared he would never realize. Then, of course, he did realize that role. And now, as Evan details in this conversation, he's at the outset of an unprecedented presidency where the pressures are unlike those that any president in our lifetime has faced. We were fortunate to have Evan with us, beaming in from his home in Washington, D.C., just a week after the inauguration. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, you can email us at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. I wanted to just open with a question about what life has been like for you. Everyday life. Um, in these last three weeks, when we have seen uh, in your hometown now uh, an, an insurrection, uh, an impeachment, and an inauguration. And I was wondering if you could just share with us what that experience has been like. I mean, utterly surreal. Let's be honest. I mean, completely, completely bizarre. Any one of these events, I mean, set aside the inauguration, which is sort of the stock and trade of Washington, that is you know, that's like Thanksgiving dinner here. We know how to do that. But the other things are the kinds of events that are you're supposed to be able to look back on once or twice in a career. And there's supposed to be these, I mean, an impeachment is supposed to be a moment of sort of acute reflection and meditation on the nature of the Republic. And, and how did we get to this? And instead, it sort of passed like that. You know, it was like Wednesday before noon. And and then, of course, we had the the insurrection, which was um, which was depressing. I mean, that's I was there on the Capitol. I went over to cover it, and you know, I will say though that the it, it was really quite um, it was alarming for some obvious reasons. I mean, the sort of I've been a foreign correspondent a lot in my career, and I've been in those kinds of environments, and sort of feel like I understand the rhythms of a of a riot. And to have it here a couple miles from my house where my you know, wife and kids are uh, was, was disorienting. But honestly, the thing that I think cool. was more disorienting, the part that really felt more, that felt like we're at the beginning of something, not the end of something, was the fact that it, it was not the young guys breaking down windows. That, that I feel like I, I recognize. You could find that almost in any place, in any society at any time to some degree. What really was alarming was the number of grandmothers, I mean, literally mm. grandmothers, who were looking on approvingly and were part of this. And they were participating in a delusion. That's what, I mean, they were participating in a, in a, in a fantasy, a kind of poisoned fantasy about overturning the election that made me realize just how deep the problem lies and how much it has really kind of gone down into the, into the groundwater of our of our shared um, mental life as a political society. And that's, I think, what we're going to be spending a lot of time dealing with over the course of the next few years is beginning to unpack how that happened and, and, and now what do we do about it. And, and, and yet there are so many other problems right now that the nation right. needs to deal with, right? And, um, and so if we look at the last week, I mean, it's only been a week since inauguration, which just feels crazy because so much has happened. And we've seen uh, the Biden administration really kick into high gear, lots of executive orders, a lot of um, you know, uh, signaling uh, different uh, uh, 
policies and plans that are being put into place. Uh, but I'm wondering for you, what's the, what's the one thing in the last week that you've seen that's been the most revealing about what direction this presidency is going? Something that showed us really what kind of a leader we can expect Joe Biden to be. You know, the surprise thing for me, Mark, was, you know, I spent a fair amount of time kind of mapping out, talking to people, talking to Biden, talking to people around him about what were they going to do right away. And one thing I got 100 percent wrong, I had no idea that they were going to uh, plan out an immigration bill as early as they did. The idea that they were going to go in, as you've heard, you know, they have this plan for a, a, a dramatic innovation reform, which would create sorry, an immigration reform, which would create a pathway to citizenship, would essentially do some of the things that had been off the table entirely for four years, obviously, really all the way back to 2013, arguably, when you had the failure of the Gang of Eight bill. The reason why I thought that's fascinating is a lot of people would say that's politically radioactive. Why are you going after an immigration bill now? Mm -hmm. And also, you know, is that something that it's really, do you think you can find a bipartisan compromise on that? And what's interesting is that it, it it's for two reasons that they're doing this. Number one, it's a kind of moral rebuttal to everything that we just went through for four hmm. years. Very moment, Donald Trump descended that escalator. His candidacy was rooted in a new kind of really explicit hostility to immigration. And it carried him to the presidency, to, to put it in you know, the shortest terms possible. And what Biden came in was and said, this is a message partly to Americans and it's partly to the rest of the world to say, no, I'm putting that in a box. And we're declaring that a perversion of our basic idea. And then there's the question, the political question, which is, OK, is that then does that mean it's just purely symbolic or do they actually think they can strike something on this? And that's where I think it gets kind of interesting. Because what he's doing is he's saying, I get it that in Washington over the last four years, a bunch of Republicans have gravitated to this Trumpist conception of immigration. But what I and what my administration sees is that there is this other thing going on, which is that if you look at this if on the data about immigration, that is actually an area where there is a huge amount of bipartisan agreement that two thirds of Americans, 64 percent believe that immigration makes this country stronger. And that number has been going up for a generation. So even though Donald Trump managed to exploit the short-term political energy of generating fear and hostility around immigration, it was in fact out of step with the long running trend in American politics. And what Biden and his administration are betting is that that's actually where the river flows. That's the main course of events. And that's hmm. surprising. I did not expect that they were going to try that. So this is, so, so this is interesting because it, it is sort of a, a, a return of normalcy is actually returning to the trajectory that was interrupted in, in 2013, then, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, it failed in 2013 partly because there was this growing you know, energy, this kind of hostility towards immigration. Um, and the world is a different place today than it was in 2013. Just demographically, the country today is younger and more diverse than it was then. Um, and then, of course, politically, we've gone through, we are scorched by the experience of the last four years where people essentially got to see, well, what happens if you take 
the hostility to immigration and you give it a political form, well, what happens is Donald Trump and everything that flowed from that. And so I think the reason why I found it kind of an interesting early indicator of something that surprised me, made me sort of, you know, recalibrate some of my instruments was that I think like a lot of us, I see Joe Biden as cautious in his basic political orientation. And that drives some people nuts. I mean, it drives a lot of progressive crazy. And it and it had in in used poorly, it has the makings of a of a non-consequential presidency. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're seeing is actually that there may be a little bit more kicking beneath the surface of the water than we have assumed at the outset. Well, and that's and that's interesting. You know, I think that that one of the things that's so remarkable about about Joe Biden over the last year is just that he has made this this interesting. Uh, shift where, and you note this in the book, usually you see uh, Democratic candidates go left for the primary and then towards the center for the general. And actually we've seen Joe Biden, well, we saw Joe Biden do the exact opposite, where as the campaign wore on, he became more and more of a progressive figure, or at least saying things that were in line with progressive um, uh, thought. And, you know, so you at the beginning of his candidacy, he assured voters that nothing would fundamentally change, right? That's the right. direct quote. And then a year later, he was saying the exact opposite, that America is due for, and again, this is a direct quote, some revolutionary, evolutionary change. And now, I mean, it's not just in uh, immigration. You're, you're also seeing, um, you know, this, this big major spending to fight the pandemic and its economic fallout. You know, you're seeing... Today, he's been signing executive orders to address racial inequity. Um, you've witnessed this shift firsthand, right? You've been, you've been interviewing and reporting on this man for the last decade. In the last year, you've seen him uh, really transform. And I'm wondering if it was surprising to you what you've seen in the last year and seeing it come to fruition now or appear to, to be going that direction? Well, I think what's interesting about it is, is that it it made people on both sides of the political spectrum really suspicious of him because you had, you had progressives who said, wait a second, you started this campaign saying nothing will fundamentally change. And in fact, you remember they made pretty good fun of it at the time. There were people made up posters like in the style of Obama's hope poster that said, Nothing will fundamentally change. And then you fast forward a year and he says that America needs transformative institutional change. And so that everybody's head exploded because they're like, well, which is it? And I had a, a, I had a really interesting conversation with, uh, with President Obama for the book about this, actually, about really about their relationship and about how he thinks of Biden's politics. But one of the questions I said was, how do you square these two things? And what President Obama said was, the honest answer is Joe Biden hasn't changed, but the circumstances have changed so profoundly that anybody who is as alert to politics as he is sensed that this is actually a moment in which incremental centrism was not up to the task. It would be a failure of a presidency. And that's why he recognized that there had to be there had to be fundamental change, meaning that the COVID epidemic and the movement for racial justice 
had a way of crystallizing these underlying facts, which had been very clear to some people, but not clear to everyone. You know, it was this, as we know now, I think a kind of dramatic exhibition of the inequities in American life, the fact that the essential workers who were needed to be able to get through the pandemic were in fact some of the people who are sort of the least respected in the economic system and so on, that all of those facts, which were the underlying reality of American politics, were suddenly inescapably clear. And in fact, what Biden sensed, you know, Biden has a kind of mind meld with the cautious voter. And mm. what he sensed was that in a moment of crisis like that, when the United States was had just more or less been kicked in the face by reality, that people were prepared to acknowledge the need for real change, that, that something had to change. Now, then it gets into the interesting, hard political questions of, okay, how far do we go? And on that, that's actually an area where I think Biden's conception of transformative institutional change will not always match up. In fact, will probably not with what AOC thinks that means, what Bernie Sanders thinks that means. But as Bernie said, um, and this is, I think, like one of the most important sentences of American politics over the last couple of years, Bernie said, look, the reason why I coalesced around Joe Biden is not because I agree with him on everything. In fact, I have deep disagreements with him. But I agree. What I know is that he is going to listen to me. He's going to like he's going to at least give me the, the serious yeah. respect of a of a real consideration of my ideas. And that is one of the sort of turns out to be, I think, one of the little critical pieces of politics is is the degree to which it matters if somebody is willing to hear you out in a serious way, not lip service, but actually like hear you out. Hmm. So so that's really the conversation that Joe Biden's having with the left. But um, but there's also a conversation with, you know, the other side of the aisle. And, and this is something that I, I really wanted to dig into with you. Um, you know, um, when you wrote about the inauguration for the New Yorker, you really keyed in on an aspect of that speech that um, President Biden gave that a lot of people have focused on in the days since, and that is unity. Mm. Um, you quote the president saying, without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury, no progress, only exhausting outrage, no nation, only a state of chaos. So, you know, rhetoric around unity, especially at, you know, inaugural addresses is nothing new. But the nature of our division right now is so different from the divide that, say, President Obama spoke about so often, right? What we've seen in, in Charlottesville in 2017, which it was the event that really catalyzed the Biden uh, candidacy, and then earlier this month during the insurrection is so much more troubling than, than anything that we've seen before. It's rooted in white supremacy, it's anti-democratic and violent. Um, you know, Biden acknowledged all of this, of course, and he's since ordered a threat assessment of violent, violent domestic extremists, but it's complicated, right? Uh, those extremists do appear to have a political home in the Republican Party. And so how can this president achieve unity across the aisle while also addressing this element of his opposition? Well, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves that, you know, unity just announced isn't worth much. If you go back to 1861, Abraham Lincoln, you know, stood on the steps of the Capitol. Back then they used to do the inauguration on the other side of the building, on the East Steps. And I have to tell you, I thought of this when I was there on January 6th, when it was being 
overrun. I mean, I'm I'm seeing guys with Confederate flags standing on the east steps of the Capitol where where Abraham Lincoln stood for his inauguration. And that year, what did he say? He appealed to people. He said, we are not enemies. He appealed to what he called the mystic chords of memory. These this kind of he was appealing to this imagined sense that we are a nation that can transcend these boundaries. And six weeks later, the United States was at war. So there's something I found very kind of in its own way, sort of haunting about Biden's appeals to unity, because it is yeah. a um, it, it it is only as strong as people are willing to make it. And at the moment, it feels very, very thin. But why does it matter? I happen to think it matters a huge amount. And the reason why I think it matters a huge amount is if we've learned anything over the last four years, it's that the words of a president have a way of setting the moral temperature of the country. And you know, even an inarticulate president, like the one who just left office, who had a way of, he had a way of, of, of just sort of pulling people over time, gradually in a direction. And those people didn't, they couldn't have been pulled if they didn't want to already go. But what he did, you know, in his sort of strange sensibility, Trump recognized that there was this possibility out there that people wanted to be angry. They wanted to be disunified. This, they wanted a sense of disillusion in their lives. And, and, he, and he pulled them. And in the same way, Biden is saying in his own kind of, you know, let's face it, sort of unglamorous way, no, we're actually going to pull you the other direction. You know, and he said this thing to me over the summer, it was in an interview at his house when he said uh, that he had learned a lesson as a result of the Trump presidency. And what he said was, I always thought that the country was moving in this kind of general direction towards justice. You know, the arc of the moral mm -hmm. universe was right. bending ultimately in the direction that we all thought it would. And he said, and what I realized, if I'm being honest with myself, was that I was wrong. You know, he he had said, look, I grew up in segregated Wilmington. I ended up becoming the vice president to the first African-American president. I thought clearly things are moving in the right direction. And then Donald Trump happened. And he said, and I realized that that you can't extinguish hate and just um, pretend that you vanquished it. That what will happen is it just kind of goes under the rocks and it waits for a president to come along and give it oxygen. And then it comes roaring back out. And in that sense, he said, a president, in his words, he said, even a bad president can make the markets rise, can make them fall. He can take you to war and he can give hate oxygen. And for that reason, on the flip side, a president who is, as he put it, you know, my whole soul is in the idea that unity is possible. And for me, I have to tell you, the, the, the words that I came out of that inauguration with kind of sustained by was a very simple idea, which is, he said, don't tell me that change isn't possible. And I, I, I think that is actually sort of a big idea because part of our exhaustion at the moment, part of our, I think for people of a certain political persuasion, part of the sense of bleakness over the last few years has been this feeling that we're locked in this paralysis. It's like Congress can't do anything. The presidency is this sort of defunct moral farce. So what are we doing here? And what he's saying is, don't tell me that we're stuck. 
And in fact, the, the, that is the course of history. It does tell you that things get unstuck. And Barack Obama, after all, I think all of us have heard him say a version of this over the last few years. But, you know, one of the things he had to learn in the presidency was that history, as he puts it, will zig and it'll zag. And there will be moments where it goes forward and it goes back. But it, you, you have to have the basic belief that it is a, a work in progress. And that I found, I found that to be ultimately kind of a humble conclusion. And I think humility is pretty much what's required at the moment uh, in American politics. We'll be back with more after this. Did you know that right now Mount Rainier is talking to us and that with the right tools, we can hear what it's saying? Or that the quietest square inch in the world might be in a patch of rainforest, a mere stone's throw from Seattle? Hi, I'm Ted Alvarez, the host of Crosscut Escapes, a new podcast that will help you explore the natural wonders of the Pacific Northwest through sound. We'll ask big questions about what makes our home tick, and we'll visit the region's wildest, most unique places to find answers. With scientists, experts, and the occasional laughing coyote along for the ride, each episode is an adventure for your ears. It's a mountain breeze in the middle of your daily grind, and you'll come away smarter, more refreshed, and more connected to all the magical things happening right now in our backyards. Look for Crosscut Escapes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. So this is really, uh, what you're seeing is an argument that uh, words matter, right? That rhetoric actually has its own political power. You know, I, and I think that the, the big question is, Joe Biden seems to be someone who's pretty confident that he can... Uh, that he can change the chemistry within our national politics. And changing the way that Americans feel is very different from changing the way that Congress works or doesn't work. And um, I wanted to actually bring up a quote from, uh, from the book where you're, you're actually talking to President Obama about his administration. And, and he says, if you ask Joe and I what regrets we might have, or what lessons we learned from my administration, it's not that we were insufficiently bold in what we proposed, it's that we continued to believe in the capacity of Republicans in Congress to play by the rules and to be willing to negotiate and compromise. And I guess I'm just curious if you feel like, like Joe Biden learned that lesson as well, or is that just a lesson that Obama is hoping that Joe Biden won? That's a really interesting question, Mark. I yeah. actually think... You know, you're onto something there partly because I got the sense when I was talking to Obama about Biden, you know, Obama doesn't give very many interviews and he knew what he was doing. You know, it was a, for a long piece in The New Yorker. And in effect, this is a way for him to speak to Biden, too, to mm. say um, in no uncertain terms, don't. Don't allow yourself to be captive to the memory of what the Senate once was and what Congress once was. And I think there is, you know, in a lot of moments, actually, in that interview with President Obama, he was, in effect, communicating to Biden. A couple of other points. Well, you know, one of the things he said was it has been painful for Joe to part with the memory of when the Congress was what it was when he joined. And. I think if you were going to identify the clearest point of disagreement between the two of them, it's over exactly where you were getting at, which is these kinds of democratic innovations, 
which a lot of people feel are, are the only path forward. If you're going to get the Congress moving again, you have to get rid of the filibuster. You have to do things like uh, expand uh, the franchise, make sure that there's you know voting on uh, on a national holiday, things like that. Um, revive the Voting Rights Act, all of these kinds of steps. And Biden, if I'm being honest about it, is not there yet. And I think he probably in the end, I think he probably, you know, look, predictions are cheap, so I'll, I'll make one. But I think he'll probably end up getting rid of the filibuster. But he's, he doesn't want to. And it and he's going to come to it with, I think, sort of in a in a po- in a mode of grief rather than of of joy, because he really does see it as a step down in the functioning of American deliberation. Mm. Um, but one thing that I think is important, Mark, is you know, look, he's probably a one-term president. We don't know that for sure. It's not, and I and I mean that seriously. Like he has not actually decided, right? But that means that his bid for history is right now. He, he is not a guy who spent 50 years wanting to be president so that he could have a kind of, nah, we got stymied by the Republicans kind of presidency. And if it comes to it, you know, for my money, if I'm looking for somebody who's going to get rid of, you know, make sort of kick through some of the crust on the surface of democracy, it might be somebody who's at the end of their career who has already run for all the offices he ever wants to run right. for and is and cares most of all for the fact that history will regard him as somebody who contributed to small d democracy. So that's hmm. my Well, I mean, so there so if he only has 4 years and there's a tremendous amount of of you know work that he wants to do, um he maybe only has 2 years, right? I mean, we're looking at slim right. slim majorities in uh, in both houses of Congress. Um, and then, and then there is this other issue, which is one of accountability for the previous four years. Um, you know, where uh, it, you you entertain the idea of having a COVID nineteen commission um, in your book, and, and you know, and, and gave some some um, some space to that. Since the books come out, there also has been an insurrection, so there have been calls for um, for some accountability there. You know, so um, so you can understand Biden maybe like not wanting to get mired in that in those issues because, you know, just wants to look forward. But I but I I get the sense that the lessons of the Obama presidency are that like you need to deal with um, with what you inherit. Um, you, You can't just look past it. And I just wonder if you have a read on how you think Biden is going to deal with these calls for accountability um, when it comes to the Trump presidency. Well, he is he's in a very tough spot. I mean, as you describe it, I think really correctly, on the one hand, he wants to be able to focus on the 100 days. He wants to start passing legislation. He wants to get all of his nominees approved and so on. Um, But if there is one lesson from his time in the White House with Barack Obama, it's do not allow people to skate, because if you let them skate, particularly, for instance, after the financial crisis, they'll go back to doing exactly what it was that they did in the first place. And he knows that. And more importantly, perhaps the people around him know it. You know, you can't. We sometimes will talk about it as Biden, Biden. It's also this team of Ron Klain. uh, You know, I mean, we'll just leave it right there for one thing. I mean, Ron Klain, who is really arguably, uh, along with Kamala Harris, you know, the other most important person in this White House, 
they are all very mindful of not only the you could all the moral hazard problem of not of not holding enough people accountable at Wall Street after the financial crisis, but also the political problem. It disenchanted a lot of Democrats who then wanted to stay home, were not enthusiastic about the party. They felt like it had kind of sold them out. So he's mindful of that. What he's trying to do, and this is where I think it's like a a whole nother, you know, we'll need a whole nother hour someday to talk about this, but separating accountability from vengeance is actually, there's a whole literature surrounding it. I mean, there's actually like really interesting, there's a a whole philosophical school around the idea that it's possible to separate the doer from the deed and to say, what I'm trying to do is punish Donald Trump, but I'm not trying to punish all of these Americans who put their lot in with him. And that is a subtle, that's a subtle bit of business. And I think in functional terms, Mark, I mean, to be really concrete about it, Biden believes there are, we have institutions that are pretty good at the business of crime and punishment. And, right. you know, with presidents, that's what the impeachment process is designed for. So it's possible that the DOJ will end up being the ones responsible. But in his view, it should be Congress deals with his presidency. And then you've got at least two jurisdictions in Manhattan and New York State that are already looking into his businesses. Let's let them do their work. And... Um, I, I think any honest accounting of the future of Donald Trump as private citizen involves him being in and out of a courtroom a fair amount over the course mm. of the rest of his life. I think mm. that's probably likely. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not as inclined to see him as a potent political threat in 2024. I think Donald Trump will be surprised how fast the air exits the balloon. Hmm. So let's let's talk about these two men a little bit. I don't want to get into comparisons too much. We're only a week into the new um, uh, presidency. But one thing that I wanted to just hear you talk about a little bit, and you talk about it in your book, it's really is a, um, it's kind of a a, a sub theme that runs throughout, um, is, is that of Joe Biden's emotional presence. And, you know, we're exiting a presidency that was driven by a kind of masculinity that some might call toxic. Uh, <laughs> I think the two of us can call it toxic. I'm willing to sign <laughs> on. I think that's a fair description. So Biden has a very different relationship with masculinity. Relationship with masculinity. It's, it's kind of a confusing relationship sometimes. He's, right. you know, doing push-ups and threatening to beat people up. And then the next <laughs> yeah. minute he's, uh, you know, he's, he's openly... Um, He's openly crying. He's, you know, he 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 kisses he kisses his his sons. He he yeah. is a very emotionally available person. It seems like, and you know, I, not only is that is that counter to what we've seen from President Trump, it, it really is something that I don't know if we've seen in the White House at all. I mean, I, the, the only comparison I can think of is the contrast. That was created when, um, you know, uh, when you saw the Obamas as this sort of like very loving couple in the White House. And that kind of changed the, the sort of the, the environment around um, around the presidency in those terms. But how, how is Joe, Joe Biden's approach to, to emotional life going to, to, to shape this president, presidency and, and, and impact the country, do you think? I think that's such an interesting question, Mark. I find this sort of, I think that the we don't talk enough actually about the, um, some of the kind of 
very sort of animalistic elements of the presidency, like the physicality and the emotional, the emotional energy that they give off. Very small things. I mean, just take, for example, anybody who watched Joe Biden and his wife walking, walking in towards the White House and sort of just even the small stuff, like the distance or lack thereof between them, the way that they look at each other or don't look at each other, the kind of unspokenness of it. You could, anybody who has any experience of marriage will look at that and say, okay, that's a real marriage. And, right. and those are people who have probably been through hell. And we, we happen to know that they've been through hell. I mean, we just we know that uh, as a factual matter. But you could you could read it even if you couldn't even if you don't speak English, you could see that. Hmm. And I had a fascinating, honestly, one of the most interesting interviews I had about Biden was with Stephen Colbert. And Colbert and Biden have this unusual relationship because uh Colbert, as some people know, he lost his father and and uh, in a in a plane crash when he was a kid, and his brother, I think, too. And and they're also both Catholics, and and they're also both people who wear their emotional lives kind of visibly, but they didn't always know each other. And when they when they met for the first time, it was it was after Bo Biden died in 2015, and. Biden was making one of his first steps back out into public. I think people might remember when he was on that show. It was kind of an unusual appearance on a late night show. It was unusually sorrowful, you know. But they met backstage beforehand. Biden had said to Colbert's people, I want to meet him beforehand. I want to I talk to him. And they met. And I asked Colbert, I said, what was that? What did you talk about? And Colbert said it was, honestly, it was one of the most this is his term. He said it was one of the most affecting conversations I've ever had because we've both been through this thing, this horrible thing, the worst thing. And we talked about our mothers and we talked about the rosary and we talked about grief. And he said the thing that you don't understand unless you are a grieving person, I mean, a person who's been through something like that is that grief is this strange force in public life that people are afraid of it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to go near it. And if they know you're grieving, they'll kind of give you give you a wide berth. It's like it's radioactive is what he said. It's like it's contagious. And he said, Biden doesn't allow that. He forces the grief out in front of you and he forces people to contend with it. He says like, no, no, this is part of life. And I think, um, you know, Actually, it was Colbert who used the term. He said, the thing about Biden that I find interesting is he's like, here's a guy born in 1942. He's, you know, the push-ups and the Corvette and the whole bit. And yet he's like the opposite. He doesn't have the toxic masculinity gene. It's like he had it at one point, perhaps, but it's kind of been sort of it was kind of beaten out of him by by the blunt force of life, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think the awareness if you were really going to distill the difference of life experience between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Donald Trump has lived a life of total artificial unimpeded pleasure. I mean, he was born into a fortune and he had the pleasure of pretending he wasn't. And then he, he was rewarded from one failure to the next, each one of them, this kind of holiday from accountability, right? That is the ultimate toxic masculine experience. And the result 
felt is the man that we all saw for four years. And Biden is this other person. He he screwed up and he and he had to drop out of the 87, 88 presidential race because he plagiarized. He then, you know, made mistakes that we can go through each one. And he also suffered along the way. And it's the combination of those things that kind of robbed him of the luxury of of being a jerk. Hmm. I wanted to end this portion of the conversation, Evan, talking about relationships. Um, you know, Biden is big on relationships. You know, I mean, it's very, very um, clear in your book. And I wanted to ask about three people, and I'm hoping that you can keep it short with each one. But I think that these are three very, very important relationships to this presidency. So let's start off with what will Barack Obama's role in this presidency be? I'll give you a minute and a half for each one of them. Well, you know, those two have a they have a they have an unusual relationship because, as somebody said to me at one point who worked with both of them, he said the reason it worked is because each one thought he was the mentor to the other. And there's some real truth to that, that each one thought he's pretty good at politics. And they actually discovered that it was sort of only in combination that they were at their strongest. I think Obama is going to be permanently available and. Um, I bet you he'll play more. I know they they talked a lot during the campaign, but they didn't advertise that, partly because they didn't want to sustain the idea that a Biden, pres- that a Biden presidency would be kind of Obama 2.0. So I, I think you could describe Obama as being, um, he'll be a sort of consigliere uh, who, can, who can be just off screen. But one thing that I wouldn't underestimate is that these are both very competitive and quite sort of prideful men. Hmm. And I, I don't think I put it in the book, but I, if I remember the story correctly, the, they, right after Biden, right after Obama became president, he invited Biden to play golf with him. And they went off, they played golf, and Biden won. And then he was never invited back to play golf with him again. <laughs> Now, I think that story may be a little out of date. I, I suspect they may have played again if that's uh, somebody else will know the answer. But that gives you a little flavor. You don't get to where they are by being shy and retiring. Yeah. All right. Next one. Um, uh, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. Well, I will like to announce with great pleasure that he is only the minority leader of the Senate uh, as of now, other than the majority leader. Look, they they do know each other for they go back a very long way. Um, Mitch McConnell was, in fact, the only Republican senator who attended Bo Biden's funeral in 2015, which is a remarkable fact if you really think about it. And yet they also are really, really far apart on some core issues. Number one, the fact that Mitch McConnell's overwhelming interest on any given day is what is going to help me, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican caucus succeed in the Senate? And, and Biden has very little interest, very little overlapping interest there. I think they are going to be fiercely at odds on, on, on matters of substance. And I also think that that baseline level of communication is really important. And it, I, it, you have to listen in a sense. What I'm, I'm not saying that it, that, it, that it means that suddenly McConnell is going to become, you know, a, a, you know, a, a real friendly promoter of democratic interests. He won't ever, but it means that he will, at least they will be able to talk to each other without some of the static that got between McConnell and Obama. 
you know, somebody said something really interesting to me, which I think is true. Somebody who works very closely with Biden, which is and and Obama, that even even to the end, even after Obama had been president of the United States and a United States senator, he still more or less looked at politics as 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 kind of a grubby business. I mean, he's like the kind of people that are that are attracted to that are not great, and. And Biden doesn't feel that way. Biden is, is, is sort of looks across at Mitch McConnell. And even though a lot of people find him odious, he looks at Mitch McConnell and he's like, no, no, but he's doing his job. So I'm going to try to figure out now how I can make my job fit with his job and see if we can actually do something productive. Hmm. All right. The final one is actually also going to be our first reader question. So we had readers send in questions in advance. Cynthia Wheaton asked, how close of a collaboration seems to be happening between President Biden and Kamala Harris? Does she have a real effect on his thoughts and plans? And then Cynthia adds for good measure that she would rather have Kamala as president. But. Fair enough. I think probably there are a fair number of people out there who would feel that way. And you got the next best thing, which is that she is vice president. Look, I, it is a real vice presidency. And I think it's important to remember that. Like, part of the reason why we why it's a real vice presidency is that Biden glories in having figured out how to make the vice presidency matter. And what he what he discovered was, as he put it to me, it is it is only what the presidency wants it to be. If he wants you to be Nelson Rockefeller, you know, cutting ribbons, then it you can do that. It's meaningless. But that's not what he wants. And he what he needs desperately from Kamala Harris is an understanding of what it feels like to be anybody in America who doesn't look like Joe Biden. And, and that's really important. I mean, Biden in his own way is kind of, you know, we sometimes, he doesn't look like the most self-aware guy, but he has a real sense of history. And he understands that the country every minute of every day is becoming more diverse. It's becoming younger. I mean, I, I, I sometimes remind myself of one key fact, which is the median age in America right now is 38 years old. It's not 78. It's even the I mean, the average senator is 68 years old. And Kamala Harris helps him understand what that feels like. What are the interests, the concerns, the anxieties? And he needs that in order to succeed. Hmm. All right. So we're moving uh, into more audience questions here. Uh, this one's interesting because I think that it's in the news. It's not actually about Joe Biden, but I want to get your take on it. There's been talk from certain people of some Republicans breaking off and starting a third party. I believe that Trump poured some cold water on this idea recently, but do you think that this will happen or that has any traction? What's your, what's your read on this? This is from Mar S. Well, I will tell you, there's, you, you hear talk about it from various parts. There are parts of the Republican party that, you know, there's the far right end, which might want to peel off and become a kind of Trumpist Patriots party or something. Mm -hmm. And then there's something more like a centrist Republican party, a kind of Romney, Romney wing. Um, and I will tell you, I think I don't think any of them will formally compose a new party. I think and this is a, and this that's not a healthy thing. I think actually it mm. is an unhealthy fact of American politics that we've created these institutional barriers that prevent the natural life cycle of parties. Parties are supposed to are supposed to thrive and they're supposed to die. That's how it's supposed to work. But one of my core frustrations with politics, it's actually like one of the things I'm writing about in my next book, is this idea that we've become, it's, we're sclerotic in ways we don't fully appreciate. Like 
we used to have a constitutional amendment on average about once a decade for the first couple of hundred years. And we stopped. We haven't had a meaningful a meaningful congressional uh, constitutional amendment since before 1972. 1972, the last one we had was about the pay for members of Congress. So our whole system has become kind of trapped in amber. And part of that is the way that the parties have become these permanent institutions. And that's not healthy. And you see a lot of the, the, the kind of toxicity set in. It's like sepsis in a body. And, it's, and, it, and it shouldn't be the way it is. So I think in answer to the question, I don't think you'll see a new party, but I think you should. Hmm. All right, moving in uh, another direction, and uh, this is something that I, that I wanted to ask you about, but a number of people want to know about um, how your reporting on China has impacted the way that you view Joe Biden. And of course, you lived and reported in China for a while. You wrote a book. You know, I know that uh, uh, Joe Biden's nominee for Secretary of State said that he believed that Trump was right to take on China, but that he did it in the wrong way. How do you think that Joe Biden will take on China? I think it's a, this is an interesting case in which there are elements of the Trump policy that even though Biden and his, um, and his foreign policy team, they think that they were, these were misconceived ideas from Trump. Uh, you know, they were, it was more of an attitude than it was a policy. It was a, just a sort of, you know, general posture of confrontation, but there was no meat behind it. They didn't have really, they didn't do the hard thinking and they didn't come up with actually substantive ways of building uh, relationships in the region to make these things happen. But even though that's the case, they will hold on to some elements of it because it, it's useful. So for instance, they're not going to relieve tariffs on Chinese goods overnight. They're going to hold on to these as long as they need to, and then sort of peel them back individually in return for concessions from China. Um, but I think the core difference, the, and really the sort of most meaningful long-running difference, is that, as we know, that one, of the, one of the things the Trump administration did was it had this fantasy that it could go out and do these things by itself, and that it could wage you know, trade wars with Canada and Mexico, and then also somehow appeal to them in, in, in a concert of powers to go uh, against China, and that never worked. And so what you're likely to see is that Biden really does believe that the United States is facing a fundamental strategic competition with China, which is very different than what he thought as recently as five years ago when he thought it was fundamentally cooperative. But his belief is that the way that you do it is by having it essentially be all of the United States allies coordinating to check China's behavior rather mm. than allowing China to sort of make one-on-one -on -one deals. So, look, I, I think, Mark, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you and I will probably be looking back on this period. And it, it may be that the Biden presidency is less important than this period in U.S.-China relations. That's sort of how big a, a fundamental, it's like a kind of political climate change that's happening, hmm. the way the world is organized. And so I think the way that, that this administration deals with China is probably going to turn out to be one of the most important things they contend with. Hmm. Interesting. We've got another question from Sadat Felder, and this, uh, you know, is another thing. I'm, I'm glad we're able to get to it. He says, I'm African-American, and I think that a way to heal from our past would be to create a memorial to slavery. What is your opinion on that idea? And 
I'd like to use that as a way to talk about how uh, you believe Biden is going to approach the issues of uh, reconciling with uh, America's past and yeah. uh, and also uh, current inequities, which we you know see a lot of EOs being signed today on. But what what what's your read on what his approach to this will be? That's a really interesting question. I, I would say I think you know I think we are sort of as a culture we're moving towards a period of a much more explicit an overt awareness of the ways in which the history of slavery informs us, informs the culture we live in today. And that it is, you know, this is not obviously some piece of history that we close the door on and can walk away from that, you know, any one of us, myself included, is shaped by the advantages or disadvantages that grew out in some form from slavery. I was obviously, you know, by virtue of the fact that I'm a, a white male, I am on the uh, you know, I've had privileges that I wouldn't have if I was born into other circumstances. I think people are kind of coming to terms with that. Biden, um, I think what's interesting about Biden is that he has a view that um, he has a view that history is a part of who we are. And he talks about the fact that you need to acknowledge history. You need to essentially mourn in order to know yourself. Um, but I don't know if I, I actually couldn't tell you if I think he was going to how far he will go down the path. Uh, for instance, like, would he want a truth and reconciliation commission? I don't I don't think so, actually. I think that's probably would clash with his perception of the path to unity. And and at the same time, I you know, he is a person who is, you know, he, he does sort of like to talk about. The, the sweep of American history, as I mentioned earlier, he really does believe that you have to acknowledge the crimes of the past in order to understand the direction we're traveling, he hopes, and uh, what it what it requires. So, you know, I, what I would expect is that you know, part of his tapping Kamala Harris is 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 a reflection of his belief that we need to reflect in our day to day politics, the full diversity of experience. I think that's going to be a part of his uh, legacy, but I couldn't tell you about whether he would want to have a, a memorial to slavery or not. It's a really interesting question. Hmm. All right. So we've got one more question, and it's actually, I, I'm going to ask you the question that you started to answer just then. Uh, this comes from Alessandra, and she asks, uh, what will Biden's legacy be? Immigration, environment, or fighting COVID, and we haven't even talked about environment or climate, which has, is a is a major piece of, of what Joe Biden is doing right now. But what will the president's legacy be? Do you think? Well, I think. Look, I, in the short term, he has to contend with what is you know, the, the most spectacular failure of governance in modern American history: the inability to deal with the COVID pandemic. Which, for all of Donald Trump's incompetence, that will be the one that is, I think, perhaps most um, indelible on his record, the death of, of more Americans now than died in World War II, you know, in peacetime here now in the United States. So that's what, he, what Biden has to deal with, first of all. But my own view is that actually in the grand sweep of things, his ability or inability to make a real break in America's approach to climate change is the fact of our time. I mean, that is the thing that will determine whether he is remembered as a president who was up to the moment and who recognized what he says, which is that I am 
the person, I, as he remember, he called himself a transition president, meaning that he wanted to open the doors to future generations of leadership. And anybody who's paying attention knows that future generations of leadership are going to be overwhelmingly beset by the realities of climate change and the challenges that'll pose to us economically, politically, not to mention uh, ecologically, and just as a sheer fact of how we live, migration patterns within the country. I mean, it is really like we are right now in this period, this kind of strange interregnum before the full brunt of reality sets in. And I think I have been surprised and encouraged, to be honest, that Joe Biden in his eighth decade really does seem to get the idea that climate change is a matter of uh, defining historical importance and that if he fails that, then he will have failed as a president. But can I add one other thing, Mark? I think about legacy is if we've learned anything, too, it's that the things that may define his legacy may not have even presented themselves yet. And if we are, in fact, at the beginning of what I what I am afraid is a kind of long running period of, a, of, of deep stress on the American experiment, something which may well run for another 25 years as uh, sort of essentially as kind of white majority America comes to terms with the idea that it is becoming a more diverse place. If that's, in fact, what Biden is presiding over, then that might become his political legacy uh, hmm. alongside the, you know, the, the, the importance of climate change. Hmm. All right, Evan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us tonight. I really appreciate it. You have such great perspective. You're such a wonderful storyteller and reporter. Just really, really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Mark. It was fun to be with you. And I hope we can do it again in uh, a little further down the Biden presidency. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Evan for helping to kick off our At Large series. This episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Mason Bryan provided research assistance, and Ann Krisnovich oversaw audience engagement. If you'd like to join us for one of our events in the future, including the Crosscut Festival, which is coming in May, Go to crosscut.com events. And if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that too on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other place you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten, and we'll be back soon with another conversation. <laughs>